the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. to the show. It's a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, questions about church. Maybe you heard something this weekend that you didn't understand. Whatever's on your heart, all you have to do is pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And I remind you, every day we're on the air. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of your screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, it's Thanksgiving. I mean, things went so fast. It's our Thanksgiving week. Let me give you just a couple of programming updates. We will not be live on Thursday or Friday. Friday this week, we will uh, be airing some repeat broadcasts um, just because of the holiday. Uh, Also tonight here at Calvary Chapel, we normally have our Monday nights, men's, women's and youth Bible studies. Uh, We're not having those uh, this week either. Give uh, everybody a chance to prepare uh, for their families and visitors and food and all of that stuff. Uh, We will be having our normal Wednesday night Bible study. It's usually the least attended Bible study of the year on a Wednesday night, the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving. Um, But if there's just a few people here, I want to be able to be here to to teach. Uh, And then we will also be having our normal Friday night Bible study uh, in the book of Colossians. So uh, that's what's going on here at Calvary Chapel, whatever it is. Obviously, we are praying for you to have a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. Okay, let me get to some questions while we await your phone calls. Uh, My first question comes from Dewey. Dewey says, uh, hello, Pastor. My Bible reading is in Ecclesiastes. Can you expound on Ecclesiastes 6.10, meaning everything has already been decided? It was known long ago what each person would be, so there's no use in arguing with God about your destiny. Uh, There's a couple of things, um, uh, Dewey, about this particular passage of Scripture and and the book in and of itself. Um, the 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 idea here and and remember Ecclesiastes is Solomon as an old man reflecting back on a life that's been squandered. Uh, he de- denied himself nothing. He he pursued fulfillment and everything. And and the theme I think throughout Ecclesiastes is vanity, vanity, or meaningless, meaningless. And he comes to the conclusion in his old age. And this is a book of repentance. When you get to the end, he looks back and says, "Well, here's the conclusion. Remember, he was the smartest man who ever lived." Here's the conclusion. The conclusion is everything apart from God is meaningless. Grasping at the wind. You know, you try to grab the wind outside. You can't grab it. And that's what he said. And he squandered 
unbelievable resources. He was unbelievably smart. And none of that. He, he pursued physical pleasure. There was just nothing that he, he, he pursued intellectual um, um, information. And nothing fulfilled. And at the end, he says, it was just God all along. Now, I'm a pastor. I teach the Bible. I've been telling people that for a very, very long time. So that's the background of the book. And when you get to chapter 6, he's going through one of his phases or describing one of his phases. And this is a fatalistic view of God's sovereignty. And and we see that with people all the time, do we? We see people saying things like, well, if God already knows what I'm going to do, what's the point? Well, God already knows what you're going to do. But you really hold the key to what God knows. And I hope that makes sense to you. I can rebel against God today, or I can serve God today, and God already knows what choice I'm going to make. But I'm the one, Dewey, that has to exercise my own free will in order to um, know what God knows. So this is just Solomon. Um, the idea he's communicating is that God's completely in control, and whatever one is, it's it's because the all God, all powerful God has named it already. And the point here is very simple: God knows everything. He doesn't cause these things. He's in control. For those of us who belong to Him, just like Solomon, He'll make life difficult, but God doesn't cause these things. So that's what's going on there. So I hope that makes sense to you, Dewey. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. Let's go to the phones. We've got Lennon on line one from San Antonio. Lennon, thank you for holding your on the air. Hello, Pastor Ron. Um, I had a question regarding, you know, like celebrity pastors that come, they come to town and, and you know, sometimes we have friends or even, maybe even family members that are willing to pay like up to five, six hundred dollars to to go see these people and you know they i guess they bring down like a comedy with them or something but um <laughs> should we warn our fellow you know christian friends and boys our opinion or should we just stay quiet and you know a lot of times we want to be politically correct and not hurt somebody's feelings or you know have yeah. our point of view regarding those issues yeah, Lennon, those are hard, especially when you're involved with friends or family members who want to do it. You know, I have a, a practice of warning anybody from uh, anything that would, would result in sort of a celebrity approach to the gospel or anything else. If, in fact, uh, somebody wants to spend their money and go see somebody and they're going to be entertained, there's nothing you can do about that. But But always be... Um, faithful to communicate the importance of solid doctrine and not of people worship. Um, um, I would ask you, somebody I cared about, Lennon, I would ask them, you know, you're going to pay that kind of money and you're going to go see somebody. You don't think there's something better that the Lord would do with that money? Now, ultimately, their decision is between them and the Lord. And unfortunately, there's just a lot of Christians who are uh, very immature um, um, they're 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 unwise regarding the things of God or the character of God, and we get caught up. I'm sorry, we get caught up um, in in a celebrity culture, and we we want to pursue men, and and you know typically those men, whether it's a worship group or a Christian band uh, or a celebrity preacher. We get caught up in wanting to be involved in, in the cool thing that's happening. And, and Lennon, I hope everybody understands this. Um, you've heard me say this before, so I know you'll understand. But I don't think God is interested in being cool. I certainly know God is interested in being popularity. I also know that the people who are uh, receiving that kind of adulation... Um, God is going to discipline them. Uh, uh, God won't share his glory with another. And that's that's just one of the things we got to remember. So uh, I think lovingly you can say, are you sure you want to do that? I mean, why would you do that? And then after the fact, all you can do is pray for them. You, you've made your position known. You've done so lovingly. And I think that's the only thing, Lennon, that we can do. Lennon, thank you for calling. It's always good to hear from you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Bruce. He says, um, Pastor Ron, I'm confused as to whether or not 
Jesus' words are more inspired than the rest of the Bible. I know people on both sides of the issue. Bruce, unfortunately, I know people on both sides of the issue as well. But what that demonstrates is that they have absolutely no understanding of what our Bible is and how it was um, given to us. You know, when Jesus is telling the Apostle Paul, for example, to write something by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, um, if Jesus is telling Paul to do that, well, that's Jesus' words. Thank you for uh, for being patient. I'm kind of dealing with some allergies. so um, Yeah, so every word in the Bible is just inspired as any other. Now, here's the thing that people don't think logically about, Bruce. When you see the words in red in your Bible, those were words given to another author who wasn't Jesus to write those down. So if you logically say, well, Paul's words aren't as inspired or as authoritative as Jesus' words, you have to make the same connection because we know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote the gospel accounts with Jesus' words in red letters. And, um, uh, you know, obviously what Jesus says is very important, but it was Jesus who told his disciples, um, the Holy Spirit will come and he will lead you into all truth. Uh, and, and, and the rest of the truth, I have much more to say to you now, more than you can bear. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. But when he, the spirit of truth comes and the spirit of truth is the author of the rest of our Bible. So, um, Bruce, those people who we call them red letter Christians, uh, those people uh, really have no understanding at all on how our Bible was collected, nor any understanding of the authority of the word of God. So um, you don't know, you don't say which side you're on, but you can't say Jesus' words are inspired, but the rest of them, well, they're okay, but they're a lesser value in terms of authority because that's contradictory to what we know about our Bible. So uh, I think, Bruce, a lot of people, and by the way, they're not being honest in doing this, but a lot of people just say, well, you know, Paul is so much about things we can't do and and the sin we have to get rid of, and Paul is against LBGTQ lifestyle, those kind of things. So, So I don't listen to his words. Well, they're just doing their own editing. And in the process, they're turning Jesus into somebody that they've made up, somebody that they've created, rather than understanding that Jesus is who he said he was. And, and every word of the Bible is, is consistent. Uh, every word in the Bible is authoritative, and we need to take them. One of the things that I will say that is, is an exception to that rule and it's not really an exception in terms of authority, but, but there are times when things are repeated. And when you get something that's repeated, that repetition is, is sort of like Jesus when he said to his disciples uh, in the King James, verily, verily, or in the NIV or the other translations, truly, truly, I say unto you. When he repeats things like that, he's calling special attention because he knows those are issues that we're going to have to deal with and they're important to us. It's, it's like when a pastor says, now listen very carefully to what I'm going to say. I listen to Charles Stanley on Sundays. Now he's, of course, with the Lord. But he'll say, if you're listening, say amen. Now, I don't do stuff like that. But but there are things that you want to emphasize. In in my Bible study yesterday here at Calvary Chapel, um, I made a point of saying, I am going to repeat for the third time. And, and we do that because it's that important. So uh, when the authors of the Bible are repeating themselves, First uh, John is a wonderful example. First um, John, he repeats himself repeatedly. Some, sometimes it's 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 confusing. He's so repetitive, but um, he's just making a point. So that's the way we need to understand our Bibles. There's urgency in some areas, and others. But again, Jesus says it once. It's authoritative. Uh, he's just moving us to action if he repeats it. So red letters are no more inspired than anything else. Thank you for the question, Bruce. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question. This one is from Patrick. Patrick. 
Um, hey, Pastor Ron, Jeremiah 30 is talking about restoring Israel in the last days. But in verse 9, it talks about restoring David as king. So many say it's talking about Jesus, but I think it's talking about David himself in the millennial kingdom. God will put David in charge of Israel, right? Not sure. There are other places it's written where David, and it means David, not Jesus, uh, Ezekiel, etc. Um, you know, that's one of the things about prophecy that, that confuses people, uh, Patrick. Um, David is in Ezekiel. He is he's identified as Israel's prince, not as the king. No, Jeremiah 30, he's talking about restoring Israel um, and restoring David as king, but he's talking about the throne of David. And Jesus, of course, will be sitting on that throne. But David is Israel's prince. Now, here's something I'm going to speculate on, and I think it's interesting. Do you remember when John and James, the 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 son of thunder, sons of thunder, uh, they came to uh, Jesus and said, um, or their mother, they actually sent their mother to do it. Um, Give my sons a seat on your left and on your right when you come into your kingdom. And uh, Jesus sort of, I think, smirked at him and said, oh, no, no, those seats are already taken. Those aren't mine to give. Those seats are already taken. I personally think that those seats are going to be given uh, to uh, David in the um, uh, the Old Testament as Israel's prince. And I think that other seat is going to be uh, attended by the Apostle Paul. So those that's that's just my viewpoint and and um it's interesting to think about those things but those are the the seats that God has given to the left and the right at least in my view. So Patrick I hope that helps you. Thank you very very much and yes he is talking about Jesus as you already are aware. 3409585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question by Mark. This is a question, Mark, that we get quite often. He says, I know we're not saved by works, but what is meant by faith without works is dead. What is a dead work? Well, let me start with the last question, Mark. A dead work is a work that does not glorify Jesus. It's a work that's done in the power of our flesh instead of the power of the Spirit. It's a work that, that doesn't honor the Lord, nor is it a work that he asked you to participate on. So that's what a dead work is. It's a, de- a work without merit. You know, in in First um, uh, Corinthians, when Paul talks about the Bema seat, he says our works are going to be tested by fire. And the, the reason the test by fire is going to be to find out whether the work is a good work or a bad work or literally a good for nothing work. And that's what matters. So that's what a dead work is. Now, when James says that that you show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by what I do. What he's talking about, Mark, is the evidence that his works are a result of his faith in Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of times we've got people who do nothing. I mean, Christians just sit around, I'm saved by grace, I'm saved by grace, and they're not doing anything. And and James's position is is simply saying that, well, how can anybody know that you have faith in Jesus Christ? I tell people pretty regularly, Mark, when their lives are a mess and they're rebelling against God, and I'll look at them and say, you know, you need to get saved. And they'll say, well, I'm already saved. And I ask them the question, what makes you think so? How could I look at your life and determine that you're a Christian? And so they say they have faith, but there's no works that that are the evidence that that faith is genuine. And so what James is saying is the test or the the evidence of a vibrant faith in Jesus Christ is that we change and we do good things. Now, there, there's a lot of works. I'm just talking about, well, I served in church or I, I prayed 10 hours a day. Not Not that kind of work. But but the works are, are like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. The man or the woman who's really saved is going to demonstrate those characteristics in their lives most of the time. The angry man, the one who refuses to forgive, James would say, well, well what makes you think you're saved? I'm sorry, what makes you think you're saved? And 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 the the response is there, there's nothing in somebody who's not 
serving the Lord Jesus Christ, there's nothing coming from their lives that would make other people aware that they have a, a thriving relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's all he's saying. He's not saying that we need to be saved by faith and by works. But what he's saying, Mark, is that the works that we do are a result of our genuine faith in Jesus Christ. I've been talking a lot here lately at Calvary Chapel about uh, transformation. Uh, I had a chance yesterday in the text in Acts chapter 22. Uh, When you're saved, you meet Jesus, things change. Well, that's the kind of work that James is talking about. I'll show you my faith by what I do. And if we really get that, Mark, then we realize that the the good things we do, the good changes, the fruit of the Spirit that comes from our lives, all of that is a result of having met Jesus Christ and Him transforming us by the power of His Spirit. So, Mark, I hope that answers your question. Lloyd asked, does God hear the prayers of unbelievers? Lloyd, believe it or not, I get a lot of flack over my answer to this question. The answer is there's only one prayer that God can hear from an unbeliever. Now, they get really mad when we say that. People say, well, well, I pray all the time. Well, I just tell them, look, God can't hear you. You're not a Christian. Well, I pray to God all the time. God hears my prayers. The only prayer you can hear from an unbeliever is the prayer that says, Lord, save me a sinner. And that has to be accompanied by repentance. I'm sorry, Lord. I keep sinning, and I don't want to sin anymore. Forgive me and come into my heart. That's the prayer that he hears. And then that person then becomes uh, someone who has access to the throne of God. But an unbeliever is cut off from God by sin. God is all-powerful. God is righteous, just, and holy. And even an all-powerful God can't communicate with somebody who's walking in the darkness. The Apostle John says that Jesus is the light. If we want to walk with him in fellowship, then we have to walk in the light. Now, let me tell you something that's even more tragic, Lloyd. Um, There are a lot of Christians that God can't hear their prayers because they persist in uh, willful rebellion against God. Uh, God says, you know, I don't want you to do that. Stop doing it. And we hold on to that sin instead of turning from it and repenting. Remember, Joseph ran away from the place of temptation. Too many Christians are planning their sin and they're just counting on God's grace to, to forgive them. And that just doesn't happen. He That kind of a relationship is mute because God simply can't hear the prayers. And the reason he can't hear the prayers is because there is no access. And that's the biggest tragedy. Imagine so many of us as Christians, Lloyd, we are so close to Jesus. I I always think about the people in the gospel accounts when Jesus is actually in the scene. And there's so many people that are close to him. They can see him. They could reach out and touch him physically. They hear him teaching. They see the miracles that he's done. And yet none of that has any value to them because their relationship with God is marred by sin. So God does not hear the prayers of unbelievers. But what he can do is invite you to be in that place where your prayers can be heard by asking Jesus Christ into your heart. And Lloyd, I'm going to tell you just my own personal experience is that whenever you tell an unbeliever that, they get really mad. They look at you like, you think you're better than me. No, it's just that my sins are forgiven and I have access to God. That's very, very important. And we can communicate that directly, but I think we can also communicate that to people in a a, a loving uh, manner. So we can be kind and direct at the same time. So I hope that answers your question. No, God cannot hear the prayers of an unbeliever. Uh, Marie wants to know, can you give me a perspective on the proper balance between faith and works? That's uh, kind of like the question that we just had, uh, Marie. Um, there, there's no balance at all. Both of those things are part of our lives. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And when we are walking by faith, then good works are going to flow. I tell our church all the time, and 
And uh, this is another thing that I think sometimes is received in the wrong spirit. I tell them all the time, everybody ought to be serving a church. There isn't anybody who comes to a church, it's their church, they, they, they shouldn't be serving. I don't care how busy they are during the week. It's 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 God gives them the gifts. It's it's God's day, and we're supposed to be serving, and that's just a function, a grateful response to the saving faith. You know, um, uh, Paul writes that we're saved by grace through faith, and that the faith not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. If God gives you the faith, should we not then? Be grateful and demonstrate that gratitude by giving God everything. That's what Romans 12.1 says. I, I beseech you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, consider everything God's done to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So, Marie, I think part of the problem is people are looking, are looking for balance. There's no balance. We're either all in for Jesus or we're not in at all. And that's the way it ought to be. Hey, there's the music. We've only got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our program 340-9585 that's area code 210 or toll free 877-630-KSLR i knew i was going to get this question so brenda thank you for sending it um, get it out of the way for the Christmas season. Hello, Pastor Ron. What do you think about Christmas trees? Brenda, I love them. I absolutely love them. I love the smell. I love the way they look. I love everything about a Christmas tree. The problem is I can't have them because Paula's so allergic that we can't have one in our house. So we haven't had a Christmas tree for a long, long time. But here's the thing. There's misunderstanding about some Old Testament texts about trees and it has nothing to do with the way we celebrate Christmas. So this is simply a matter of personal choice. And and no one should tell anybody else, God is against Christmas trees. Uh, he's not. You know, everything that's pagan related, God is redeemed in these last days to give us a testament about Jesus. And I think the best thing that we can use a Christmas tree is to talk about that Jesus is the light of the world. That's why we put lights and decorations and shiny little dangly things on our Christmas trees. It's because um, we can let people know this this is what Jesus, he came in the world. You know, you can take a room. Now, uh, when we used to have Christmas trees, many, many, we had our kids growing up. Um, you know, the day when you finally got rid of the tree, that was a bummer. I mean, that was really a bad day because you look in the house, looked empty, you didn't have that evergreen smell. Um, and, and I used to think, you know, I want the tree to be here full time, but it couldn't. As a Christian, I want us to be able to say, you know, that aroma, that Christmas tree is like the aroma of Christ, the aroma of life. That's what Paul says. For those who are believers, but the aroma of death of those who reject Jesus Christ. So, Brenda, thanks for asking the question, but yes, if you love Christmas trees, go for it. If you don't want them, I mean, Paula is way more spiritual than I am, and she just can't have a Christmas tree because of her allergies. Great question. Thank you. David says, Pastor, I've heard you talk about Joshua replacing Moses and being afraid. Can I expound Please, or can you expound, please? He says, um, David, one of my favorite lines in all of scriptures in Joshua chapter one. Um, imagine for a moment how difficult it would be to replace Moses. Moses remains throughout all Jewish history, the most revered Jew, more so than Abraham, the most revered Jew. Moses, the author of the law, at least that's the way Jews view it. Um, and and he's the one that, that spoke 
to God, for the people. And when God spoke, he's the one that communicated the message. Now, we've got three million people in the wilderness, and uh, Joshua is suddenly told that uh, Moses is done. You're the next man up. You're in charge. And and Moses, um, he would say, how can I possibly replace Moses? And he was afraid. Now, we know Joshua was afraid because God told him, do not be afraid, over and over and over. Um, and who, who could blame him? And, and that line that I love so much, God says to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. And then it's like, okay, now let's move on. And Joshua, all he could start thinking about was, well, how are the people going to trust me? How are they going to have confidence in me? How am I going to relate to the people? Because I can't see God or, or communicate with God the way Moses did. And that's when God introduced Joshua to what I consider a very New Testament ministry. He said, Joshua, Moses is dead. Get over it. You have my word. I used to talk to the people through Moses. Now I'm going to talk to my people through the word. You have my word. Do not turn to the left or to the right, but stay focused on the, on the word of God. And that's how I'm going to communicate to the people. And, and David, that's exactly what he's doing, you know, these thousands of years later. He's still communicating with his people through his word. So that's why I said Joshua was a very New Testament ministry. But I think we've got to understand his nervousness, um, who would want to be the replacement for Moses. And, and uh, of course, the people are going to compare everything Joshua does with Moses. And God said, no, Joshua, don't worry. I got you. I will elevate you in their eyes. And he did it through the word. So, yes, he was afraid a lot. And I love the fact that God is direct with him. Moses is dead. That's the past. Now, Moses revered. Moses is a great man, but he's dead. So, Joshua, how about we look forward now and we move forward? And that's what's going to happen. You know, David, I'm uh, I'm getting old. And uh, uh, my replacement, Pastor Ken, who appears on this radio show um, uh, when I'm out of town or something, uh, Pastor Ken is going to replace me eventually whenever that time, uh, when the Lord says, okay, it's time to go, or, or I'm physically unable to do it. And, you know, one of the hardest things, and I'm not, I'm not comparing myself to Moses. Please don't anybody misunderstand. But it's hard to replace a founding pastor. You know, the people that come to Calvary Chapel, I'm the only voice really they've heard for 28 and a half years. And it's hard to replace a founding pastor. Calvary Chapel lost our founding pastor, Chuck Smith, 10 years ago. Um, and things are different. It's hard to replace a founding pastor. Um, and yet to every person, and I've said this to Pastor Ken, when I'm gone, tell everybody, get over me. Because it's time to move on. And, and David, God will do greater things through Pastor Ken here at Calvary Chapel than he ever did with me. So that was the kind of thing in a major, major way that God was dealing with, or that Joshua, rather, was dealing with um, when he was tabbed to replace Moses. Joe, this is the easiest question I can possibly answer. Joe says, do you agree with Calvinism? No. I guess we're done. No, I'll be a little bit more informative, Joe. Um, Calvinism is not heresy. Um, it, it is a systematic theology that I think is deeply, deeply flawed. I think um, very little fruit typically comes from, and I'm talking about the kind of fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, uh, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Very little of that fruit is associated with those who are Calvinists. They are not joyful. Um, they can't tell if, if they really believe uh, their doctrine. They can't tell somebody that God loves them because they don't know if God has chosen them. Um, so, no, I don't agree with Calvinism at all. For me, personally, the, the, the most egregious doctrinal error with Calvinism is um, the, the, the limited atonement aspect. Um, Calvinists believe that God died only for those who are going to be chosen. He didn't die for the sins of the world, when in fact the Bible says clearly that he did. For God so loved who? The world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. 
And and I think when you start telling people that God doesn't love everyone, or you can't say God loves everyone, when the Bible says God is love, I think you've got some real, real issues. So limited atonement for me is the uh, worst of the five points of traditional Calvinism. So no, I don't agree with it at all, but I recognize they are brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, there are some Calvinists who have made a great impact on church history. There's some Calvinists uh, who are making an impact today. Um, I I think John MacArthur, who has been um, very prolific. I mean, it seems that he writes a book every day. And and um, you know, he's been been faithfully teaching the word for more than fifty years at his church, and there's much to 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 um, acknowledge in terms of of his meritorious ministry. However, I think there's sort of a gruffness and a meanness at times, um, uh, almost a cynicism. And an elitism almost. So, but but he's just one example of Calvinist pastors who who uh, God is using. So God's going to use them, but their doctrine, their systematic theology, Joe, is what's wrong. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I love your calls because you guys are more interesting than I am. Here is a question. This one is from Cynthia. Um. My pastor says only God can correct him. Is that a biblical position? Cynthia, that's arrogance. That's arrogance. I'm surrounded by a lot of people that can correct me. Um, one, all of you know, you hear every Thursday, Paula, um, I know she loves me. I know she has only my best interest at heart. And if she sees something that I'm doing wrong, um, then then it's her job, it's her responsibility to to correct me. The same is true for my uh, staff of pastors. And, and really not just them, but anybody. If I was to behave in an ungodly way or in a carnal way, uh, I would expect that the people here at Calvary Chapel are taught well enough that they would know it's their responsibility to come and say, Pastor, that wasn't very loving or that wasn't very kind. I think you should apologize for saying that. So a pastor that says only God can correct him uh, is a pastor who is certainly lacking humility. And, um, um, you know, we need um, to be correctable. We need to be teachable. And when we get to this place, it's almost like don't touch God's anointed. And, uh, and of course, we all know how that's misused by these kind of people. So, Cynthia, um, I would say that's a... a, a not a healthy spiritual environment for you to be in. Here's a question from Malcolm. Malcolm says, Pastor Run, what is your opinion of pastors not being married? I think they have to be. Um, Malcolm, I had a question similar to this. Somebody says, I'm single and I'm called to be a pastor, so why would God exclude me? God doesn't exclude single people. Now, here's the thing that we need to remember and this is why we need to study to show ourselves approved. Work men, work women, rightly dividing the word of God. The person who wrote that the pastor must be the husband of one wife was single. The Apostle Paul, who wrote that, was a single man. And in fact, in his letter to the Corinthians, he allowed his sing- singleness. He said, you know, I wish everybody were as I am, and that's given the gift of celibacy. He said, if you're single, um, then then you can devote all of your time and energy to the Lord. And he says, that's better. And that's better for him. But we also have to balance that with it's not good for men to be alone. So um, single men certainly can be pastors. But they don't have to stay single. And uh, I'll tell my pastors all the time, they're, they're, the, the wives that God has given them, are a blessing to them, and it's better for a pastor to be married. So I I agree that it's better, but it isn't a requirement. And then we know that because, again, the Apostle Paul was single, and he's the one who wrote that. So, Malcolm, thank you very, very much for that question. Here is a question just called into the studio. 
uh, from Calvin in Gonzales, Texas. Calvin, thank you for for listening. Uh, what happened to all of the disciples? How did they die? And what happened to them afterward? Um, um, Calvin, one of the problems with this is is we have tradition in his church history that that gives indications uh, about where their ministries were, but there's no real authority that tells us that that the information is correct. Um, I'll give you an example. Most of them died. Uh, In fact, all of them except the Apostle John died the death of a martyr. Now, they tried to kill the Apostle John, but God, of course, wasn't done with them and sustained him. Uh, It's thought that John was in his 90s when he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos and uh, and wrote the revelation or received the revelation of Jesus Christ. So God preserved him until uh, God was done with him. And then he died kind of a natural old age, but he survived many attempts at, at, uh, at his murder. So um, all of the other apostles, they mar- were martyred for their faith in different ways. We know Peter was crucified. Uh, under the reign of Caesar Nero. Um, um, it happened when he was older, not as old as John, but it happened when he was older. And we know that um, church tradition says that he was crucified upside down. Um, when he was ready to be crucified, he said, I'm not worthy to be um, killed in the same way as my Lord, so, so could you turn me upside down? Um, we don't know whether that's true. Um, that tradition has has tenaciously sort of hung on, but we don't know whether it's true. We know that Thomas, for instance, took the gospel to India, and he eventually gave his life. But we don't really have a bunch of information on the rest of the apostles. Um, you can do a Google search, and the and and well, of course, not everything on the internet is true. Uh, one of the things you can find if you ask that question by Google, they'll give you a great bibliography. Um, a great bibliography. There's a book called New Testament History by F. F. Bruce, and I'm I'm always recommending F. F. Bruce to people. Um, but in the book New Testament History, uh, he gives us some um, history uh, that is that is known to be certain uh, on on um, the the first century and, and what happened in the time during the New Testament was written. Uh, but but again, the, a lot of the value in those books is the bibliographies. And so it's interesting you can chase these things down. And and as I teach, and I, I've in the past, I've given an indication uh, where the apostles were and what happened to them at the end. I always qualify that by saying, this, this is what, what tradition says is true. We don't know that's true. This isn't inspired by God, but this is uh, what we think we know. Um, as long as we don't become dogmatic about it, uh, Calvin, I think it's okay. But they died the martyr's death, um, and um, you know they took Jesus' uh, direction. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, making disciples of all men, teaching them to obey everything. And that's what they did, and again, because they were uh, persecuted uh, unto death. Very difficult to be a Christian in the first century church, very dangerous, and and they died. Uh, James, uh, the Lord John's brother, one of the sons of thunder, we know because it's in the book of Act, Acts, uh, it is inspired from God. We know that uh, he was beheaded. He was the first of the apostles martyred for his faith. And um, beyond that, uh, all we have is is uh, legend or tradition, and we don't know for sure. Good question, Calvin. Thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I think we got a little bit of time left. Um, <laughs> I'm laughing now. This anonymous question. Uh, when Paula hears it, she's gonna laugh and hope. Can you explain why pastors have to yell so much? It bothers me. Uh, I'm laughing anonymous because I have never one time in 28 and a half years raised my voice from the pulpit. I, I 
you know, I sound silly if I if I try to raise my voice. I, I have a Winnie the Pooh voice, and uh, I can't yell. And in fact, if I try to get loud, I can't be heard. If I'm in a room where there's a lot of background noise, where people are talking, or even at a, at a get-together or something, and people are talking in the background, I can't even be heard. That's why I need microphones. And, and so I've never yelled or raised my voice not once in all of those years. And yet, um, some people, some pastors think that's a, a style. Um, I don't get it. Um, it. It causes me difficulty in concentrating on what they're saying. Um, and I don't understand. So I, I, I can't explain it other than to say uh, it is a style of preaching that throughout the generations has persisted. The only pastor that can raise his voice, and now he's with Jesus too, but the only pastor that can raise his voice, and it doesn't bother me, was Adrian Rogers. And that's only because he had like the best voice ever. And and there were times when to make a, a point or something, he would raise his volume level. But it still sounds like God himself speaking, so it was okay. But other than that, Anonymous, I'm with you. I don't know why they yell so much. Uh, I think it's distracting. And the one thing that we don't want to do is distract from um, the teaching of the Word of God. So that's the best I can do. Probably be better for you to ask somebody who yells. I don't know. Stephanie says, five minutes left. Thank you. Stephanie says, why doesn't God speak directly with us today like he did in the Bible? Stephanie, the answer is because he doesn't need to. In the Bible, Jesus was was God and, and, and they were rejecting him. And um, he would appear to them. In the Old Testament, Jesus hadn't been born yet. And they still sometimes needed direction. And so the Lord would speak uh, to Moses. Uh, he would speak uh, to, to, to the prophets. Um, but they didn't have what we have. We have the word of God. We have everything that God ever needed to say. They didn't have that then. They needed signs and wonders. They needed visions and dreams. We've got 66 books written by 40 authors over 1,500 years, completely internally consistent, infallible, inerrant. We don't need that. Now, Stephanie, this isn't personal because I'm sure this isn't the genesis of your question. But but one of the reasons people go after visions and dreams and they seek miracles is because they don't want to take the time to invest in the Word of God. And we really need to be able to discern the voice of God versus the voice of the enemy versus our own voice floating around in our heads. And the only way you can do that is to immerse yourself in the Bible, in the Word of God. And then God will develop, God the Holy Spirit will develop that sense of discernment. And uh, honestly, he doesn't need to speak to us directly. Now, let me speak out of the other side of my mouth for a moment. There are still places in the world there are still places in the world where Jesus is appearing to people in visions. If you are a Muslim and you are seeking God with all of your heart, um, God is, is uh, he, uh, there's, there's countless examples, uh, credible examples of, of Muslims having visions. Now, why would God do that? Because those people are going to be persecuted often unto death when they convert from Islam to Christianity. And so God simply makes it so clear to them. And he calls them. And and when that happens, um, you know, there's going to be a price to pay. That doesn't happen to you and to me, Stephanie. So it still is happening in some places in the world. But it's not happening here, because here, especially in our country, in fact, in the West, period, we have so much evidence of Jesus, what he's done, uh, who he is, uh, the, 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 the overwhelming evidence that he's God. And God says, now just believe me, take me at my word. You know, so often we, we say things like, well, God, you show me and I'll believe. And God says, no, how about we do it different? How about you believe and then I'll show you? 
So Stephanie, that's why he doesn't speak directly in an audible voice or in a in a, a, a visual encounter. Um, he says, "You have my word. You have my word." Last question of the day. This one is from Alfred. Um, he says, "Why are there some pastors who approve of LGBTQ relationships and others like you who do not?" Alfred, the other guys aren't saved. It's that simple. So they're not saved. They don't believe in the Word of God. They're not saved. Um, if, if I say to our church all the time that you can't be a Christian and disagree with our Christ. And, and the Word of God makes it very clear that an LGBTQ plus lifestyle is uh, a sin. Uh, it's a perversion. It is abnormal. And uh, people that embrace it are embracing it because they just want to be popular or they just want to love on people, their concept of love being sort of perverted as well. Um, but, but they're not saved. They are not Christians. Jesus said, woe to anyone who make one of my little ones stumble. And they're making a lot of Jesus' little ones stumble. So um, that's, that's the dividing line. Jesus himself draws that line in the sand, Alfred. And... Uh, we got to choose which side of the line we're on. I choose Jesus' side. Hey, thank you for tuning in today. We've got two more live days in the week, Tuesday and Thursday. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll be back tomorrow, Lord willing, at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.